Section 2 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melanie Young. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. Edited by Francis Rotwheeler. Zoology, Development, and Distribution The animal kingdom includes a vast variety of organisms whose common basis of life is the cell. They are, like plants, an organized community of cells. The various members of this community are adapted to perform different services, and many groups have specialized, each for its particular function, so that the individual cells are no longer capable of a separate life. The animal or plant is thus not a mere aggregate of living cells, but an organism. In the successive classes and orders of animals, from lowest to highest, there is a progressive complexity in the organism, a more and more absolute and exact limitation of the cells or groups of cells to special functions. This progressive specialization is the key to the life history of the individual organism, the development or ontogeny of the animal and to the life history or phylogeny of the race. All animals are to be regarded, then, as organized communities, the units of these communities being protoplasm cells, originally identical in structure and capable of all the necessary activities of life, but specialized to perform particular functions. The first steps in the plan of organization, as they appear in the development of the individual, are identical in all animals. The cell divides and redivides until it forms an aggregate of numerous small cells, the blastula. This aggregate, continuing to subdivide, then takes on a thimble-like form, the gastrula, one layer of cells lining the cavity, the other being external. This cavity is primarily to contain and digest food, and the cells lining it naturally take on the functions of nutrition while the outer cells, in contact with the outside world, take on the functions of sensation, of offense and defense, and procuring food. The living sponges and hydroids illustrate this stage of development, more or less modified. The next important stage in development is the formation of a third intermediate layer of cells between the inner layer, or endoderm, and the outer layer, or ectoderm. From this intermediate layer are developed in the higher animals the muscles, circulatory system, and various glands and organs, the alimentary system with its glands being developed from the endoderm, the skin, the nervous system, and the organs of sensation from the ectoderm. From this point onward, fundamental differences are to be found in the plan of organization of the principal types of animals, and the organs adapted to serve the same purposes, are often developed from different parts and in a different manner. It is upon these fundamental differences in organization that the classification of the animal kingdom is based. These lower animals are derived from the same stock as the higher ones. They persist today because they are perfectly adapted to their habitat and mode of life, or because they have gotten into a groove of evolutionary progress which did not allow them to advance so fast or so far as the higher types, or because of arrested development from obscure causes. 
Some of the factors which have limited their evolution are clearly seen. Others are, and perhaps always will be, difficult to trace. Life originated in the ocean, or at all events, in water. But the dry land environment has stimulated a higher evolution, the obvious cause being the more abundant supply of oxygen, admitting of more active life. In order to preserve the form and relations of their parts, all animals of any considerable size have been compelled to develop a rigid framework or skeleton of some kind. The material and position of this skeleton and its further use for purposes of offense and defense have profoundly influenced the further development of the race. In the lower animals, the skeleton is generally external, and the insects may be considered as representing the highest possibilities of a development based upon an external skeleton. In the vertebrates, the skeleton at first was mainly external, but this became gradually replaced by an internal structure, and the higher possibilities of development with the internal skeleton form one leading cause for the higher development and greater size attained by vertebrated animals. The third and perhaps the most important factor in causing or arresting evolution is in the nature of the environment. Whether constant from age to age or subject to slow, secular, or periodic change during geological time. If an animal is fitted to its mode of life and the conditions of its immediate surroundings remain unchanged, the organism has no occasion to vary and tends to become fixed and unprogressive. But if the conditions are slowly changing, the race must become adapted to fit its new environment and will retain or acquire a variability which through the influence of selection will lead to greater progressiveness. The uniform and unchanging conditions of the deep sea have not been favorable to progress. The theater of evolution of marine organisms has been the ever-changing littoral region, the shores of the ocean, advancing and retreating through successive geological periods, widely varied in character, ranging from rocky coast to sandy shoals or from muddy flats to the still, clear water of protected inlets. Some of the deep-sea organisms, such as protozoans and sponges, have remained unchanged so far as is known from the earliest geological periods down to the present day. Others, like the crinoids or sea lilies, long since extinct in the littoral region, have found in the ocean depths a refuge where they still survive. Others again, like the deep-sea fishes, originally adapted to the life of the shore have become curiously modified to suit the conditions of the ocean's depths. Easily evident, likewise, is a corresponding difference between freshwater and land animals. There can be no doubt that all terrestrial life was ultimately derived from an aquatic ancestry. Those animals which have solved the problem of the utilization of the more abundant oxygen supply of the air, instead of the limited amount available in the water, having been able to assume a higher development and greater progressiveness, and the snails among mollusks, the insects among arthropods, and the reptiles, birds, and mammals among vertebrates are the highest types in their respective classes. The freshwater animals, more limited in possibilities of development, 
and subject to less change and variation in their conditions of life, are of inferior type, and as in the deep sea, among them may be noted survivals of very ancient and primitive organisms and higher types developed upon the land, but readapted to aquatic life. Having once acquired the capacity to use the oxygen of the air, however, they are careful not to lose it again, and remain air breathers, however far their adaptation to aquatic or marine life may be carried in other respects. It will have been noted that reference has been made to the ancient forms of life, thousands of varieties of which passed out of existence long before the existence of man, and it is natural to ask by what means their nature is learned. To reply by fossils without determining what a fossil is would be to beg the question. The term fossil, which originally meant merely things dug out of the ground, has come to have a much more definite and restricted meaning in the language of modern science. Fossils are the remains of animals or plants or indications of their former existence found buried in the soil or enclosed in the rock. In general, only the hard parts of animals are preserved, the shells of mollusks and crustaceans, and the bones of the vertebrate animals, while the fact that they are preserved at all is due to a combination of favorable circumstances. Usually, when an animal dies, the flesh or soft parts decay or are devoured. The hard parts last longer, but gradually disintegrate into formless dust or mud under the influence of the atmosphere or the air-bearing waters of the surface. But if the animal is buried in a swamp, a river bottom, lake, or estuary, where sediment is being piled up by the action of the rivers or of the sea, its hard parts may be covered up in time to escape destruction to get below the zone of atmospheric influence. In this case, the remains will be subject only to the influence of the mineralized waters that permeate the soil and rocks beneath the surface. The action of these waters is to dissolve, particle by particle, the organic matter of the fossil and to replace it with mineral matter. In this process, known as petrifaction, usually the structure is preserved as well as the external form. The bone or shell is thus converted wholly into stone solid and permanent like the sediment in which it was buried, now converted by the same agencies into rock. This is the ordinary process by which fossils are made. There is nothing mysterious about it. It is merely the natural result that water seeping upward toward the surface, loaded with mineral matter and destitute of organic matter, tends to dissolve any organic matter it finds on its way and deposit mineral matter in all the minute cavities left, until they are filled and the porous mud or sand becomes solid and permeable rock. Fossils, then, preserved in this manner, constitute the record of the history of life on the earth. It is an incomplete record. Long periods of time are unrepresented, because the sediments then deposited have been washed away or deeply buried or the fossils in them destroyed by crystallization. A large proportion of the past life of this planet is imperfectly recorded, or altogether lost because the animals had no hard parts to be preserved. 
the vast majority of the records are undiscovered or inaccessible because they are still buried far beneath the surface, and moreover, the interpretation of the records is often doubtful. Yet the importance of paleontology, or the study of fossil remains, is great, and it's teaching positive because the evidence is direct. No one today would venture to question that the fossils of the rocks are the actual remains of animals which lived and died in former ages. And the scientist's knowledge of existing animals and plants is now complete enough for him to be able to declare positively that the animals which formerly inhabited the world were different from those of today, and that in proportion, as research is pushed backward in time, the earlier forms were more and more diverse from their modern successors. Furthermore, it is seen that the lowest and simplest groups of animals were of the earliest introduction to the past life of the world, and that the higher groups have successively appeared in order of their complication and specialization in physical and mental structure. Throughout the geological record, there is evidence of anecton, or intermediate types, linking together groups of animals now widely separated, and the earliest appearing members of each group are more or less generalized. That is to say, their bodily structure conforms to the general type of the whole group, but shows a combination of characters which are now found scattered among the various modern members of the group but seldom or never all combined in one animal. These generalized characters also are apt to be anecdotal and link the group to other groups. For example, the birds and reptiles are now wide apart, the birds being toothless, feathered, adapted to flight, walking or hopping when on the ground, and with the tail, exclusive of feathers, reduced to a little rudimentary stub while the reptiles possess teeth and scales and are crawling or swimming, with long vertebrated tails. But all the earliest birds had true teeth like reptiles, and the oldest of them, the Archaeopteryx, a long vertebrated tail feathered on the sides like the head of an arrow. And on the reptilian side are found the dinosaurs, among the more ancient reptiles resembling birds in many details of their bony structure and especially in their long legs, adapted to walking instead of crawling, and the pterodactyls, a group of flying reptiles, the latest of them tailless and toothless, with horny beaks like the birds. Again, there is a great gap among modern animals between fishes and four-footed animals of the land. But the most ancient fishes are precisely those which come nearest in structure to the higher vertebrates and from which these might most readily have been derived. Through all the invertebrate groups, the same conditions appear. Thus, in a broad way, the discoveries of paleontology tend continually to break down the sharp lines of distinction between the great modern groups and classes of animals, and do so in just such a way as must follow if the doctrine of evolution be true. If the various species, genera, orders, and classes of animals are derived from a common ancestry through the evolutionary process, it should be possible to trace the successive steps in the evolution and differentiation of each race by the fossil remains of its ancestral stages in the successive geological epochs. 
This has been done, precisely and in detail, in many instances. That it has not been done in all is due to the imperfection of the geological record, to a peccable knowledge of it, and especially to the vastness of the problem and the limitations, in means, facilities, or insight, of those who are laboring to solve it. Broadly and approximately, the course of the evolution of animal life has been traced out from the indirect evidence of structure and individual development, and the more direct but less complete evidence of paleontology. The task of working out and proving it in detail is as yet far from complete. But among the thousands of workers who are devoting their lives to the study of fossils and their meaning, not one has been led to deny the truth of evolution or to doubt the theory of descent. Difference of opinion among scientific men is as to the method, not as to the fact. Closely allied to the nature of the animals of the past is the question of their habitat in early times, involving the problem evoked by their present geographical distribution. There are very few species of animals which inhabit more than a portion of the world. Most of them are limited to quite a small part of the land or water areas. Man is perhaps the most cosmopolitan of all land animals. He inhabits every considerable land area of the globe, except the Antarctic continent and a much smaller area around the North Pole. Most animals, however, are limited in their distribution by uncongenial climate or by barriers, which the species has not found means of crossing. With land animals, these barriers may be broad stretches of ocean, extensive deserts, high mountain ranges, or great rivers. With sea animals, they may be continental barriers, uncongenial stretches of coast, and sometimes the volumes of fresh water poured out by great rivers. But the limitations imposed by climate and temperature are the most efficient barriers to the worldwide distribution of either land or sea animals. Animals are dependent directly or indirectly upon plants for their food and the abundance and rapid growth of vegetation in the tropics affords opportunity for a corresponding development of animal life. The profusion and variety of life in the tropics cannot fail to impress an observer from the temperate zone. The struggle for existence everywhere going on is perhaps somewhat different in character. It is an internecine war, a strife for survival among the animals themselves rather than a combat against an unpropitious climatic environment. In the temperate, and especially in the Arctic regions, the element of struggle against the untoward conditions of outside nature is superadded to the ever-present war against other animals, which, scattered over a wider space, is less apt to impress the observer, although its influence on the development of the race may be no less powerful. Here, perhaps, in the double struggle, against animals and against nature itself, lies the reason for the dominance of temperate and northern types when brought into competition with the more abundant but less severely selected races of the tropics. This fact is familiar in the case of man, but it is equally true among animals. The tropic regions, with their abundant food and easy life, 
are the refuge of inferior races, succumbing and driven forth before the sterner competition of the North. The zoological realms and provinces of the world correspond broadly with the geographic divisions, and even to some extent with the political divisions. Since geographic and climatic barriers have conditioned the distribution of the races of men and thus largely influenced their governments. In the land fauna, it is observed that the great land mass of the northern continents forms one great zoological realm, the whole Arctic. South America, a second, the Neotropical. Africa, south of the Sahara, a third, the Ethiopian and Australia a fourth, the most isolated of all. The various islands partake more or less of the character of the mainland adjoining, but there are marked differences which point to a different distribution of land and water in former times than now. Thus the animals of the British islands are almost identical with those of continental Europe while the animals of Madagascar are widely different from those of Africa. The simplest explanation, obviously, is that the former have been connected with the mainland of Europe, since the present species of animals came into existence. The latter has been separated from the mainland since remote ages. Geological considerations support this view. The marine provinces corresponded in part with the great oceans, but are more influenced by zones of temperature than those of the land. So far as shore animals are concerned, their lines of distribution will be along the coastlines, and a broad area of deep sea is as much a barrier to most of them as is a land barrier. Like the land animals, however, they give convincing evidence of former differences in the distribution of land and water. There is a considerable proportion, for instance, of identical species on the two sides of the Isthmus of Panama, not found on the Asiatic or European coast. Hence, there must have been communication between Atlantic and Pacific oceans, either at the Isthmus of Panama or elsewhere, since these species came into existence. They could not have gone around the Horn because they are tropical species and are not found on the shores of temperate South America. The geographic distribution of animals, present and past, together with the geological record of the evolution of each race, furnishes a most important line of evidence on the past history and geography of the globe. And under the name Paleogeography, a branch of study is being built up which is of great scientific importance as well as of transcendent interest. Its scope and vastness of purview are readily recognized when it is remembered that an intimate knowledge of zoology and of geology, each of them vast and comprehensive, is a prerequisite. Especially is this true of the lower orders of life, which, despite their simplicity, afford the most fascinating realms of investigation. End of Section 2 Recording by Melanie Young